Section 15 of Other People's Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Jones. Other People's Lives by Rosa Nuchette Carey. Book 6. The Ten Shanty. Chapter 1. A Red Tam O'Shanter. One fine midsummer morning, Sandylands was electrified by the news that the tin shanty had found an owner. It was Miss Batesby who brought the intelligence to Kingsdean, and though she was no favorite there, and Madame had always kept her at arm's length, speaking of her severely as a meddlesome, gossiping old maid with a tiresome habit of prying into her neighbor's business, yet, on this occasion, she received her civilly, and even pressed her to stay and rest a little after toiling up the hill in the sunshine. Miss Batesby had scant information to impart, but she spread it out thinly and made it last a long time. She had seen the door of the tin shanty standing open the previous day, and Susan Perks with her pail and scrubbing brush hard at work scouring the floors, so she had just stepped up to question her. Mrs. Perks had told her that a gentleman and his sister had taken the cottage for a year, they were from London, she believed, and their name was Ingram. A van load of furniture was to come down the next day, and she had had orders from Mr. Roper, the agent, to clean up the place a bit. No one had lived in it for the last year and a half since Joshua Armstrong had left, and the rooms were damp and fusty from disuse. Her girl, Chatty, was coming down to help presently, and then Susan went on with her scrubbing. The tin shanty, as it was always called, was a ramshackle, nondescript sort of cottage standing at the end of the valley. A small iron room built in the garden for purposes of photography had given it the name. The iron roof was distinctly visible from the inn, but the cottage itself was hidden from sight, and the fir woods shut it in. It was almost as retired as a hermitage, and its dullness and the close neighborhood of the firs made it a most undesirable abode in most people's eyes. The valley itself was a very pleasant place. The houses were prettily built, and the gardens were gay with flowers. A broad grassy road separated them from the fir woods opposite. Some of the houses had a charming peep of the church and the inn. The largest house belonged to Colonel Chambers, but he and his wife were seldom at Sandylands, though the children, nurses, and governess spent the greater part of the spring and summer there, and their parents paid them flying visits at intervals. The governess, Miss Merriman, was a severe-looking young woman in spectacles, but the children seemed fond of her, to judge by the way they all crowded round her or ran to the gate to meet her on her return from weekday service. Next to Silverdale, as Colonel Chambers's house was called, came the Hollies, where the Duncans lived. The Duncans were a comfortable old couple. Their children were all married and settled in life, but relays of grandchildren were to be found all the summer, playing in the gardens of the Hollies, or helping grandfather with his gardening, while the elder ones gathered rose leaves for their grandmother's great blue jars of potpourri, or trotted beside her as she visited kitchen, pantry, and store closet. Next to the Hollies came Red Bray, where the three Mrs. Willoughby had lived from time immemorial. The Mrs. Willoughby were growing old. Miss Sabina, the eldest, was stout and asthmatic, and kept to the house all the winter. It was she who managed the book society, and ordered all the new books from Moody. 
Sandylands highly respected Miss Sabina, and it was even whispered that earlier in life she had once contributed to a magazine under a nom de plume. The second sister, Miss Maddie, was an energetic person and took entire control of the household. She and Miss Batesby were always at daggers drawn and could scarcely speak civilly to each other at the district visitors' meeting. The third sister, Miss Leonora, was much younger and still retained some claim to good looks. She played the organ and helped the vicar train the choir, and she and Claire Merrick soon became warm friends, for, in spite of a few affectations and a slight remnant of girlishness, Miss Leonora Duncan was a kind-hearted and cultivated woman. Next to Red Bray came Ferndale, where the Powers lived, a large family of untidy, noisy young people. Mrs. Power was a widow, and her one object in life was to make ends meet. In this fruitless effort, she was assisted by her eldest daughter, a worn, delicate-looking girl who taught her young brothers and sisters and slaved in their service from morning to night. Margaret Power was also a great favorite with the little sister. The remaining two or three houses were tenanted by retired tradespeople. Then came Miss Batesby's modest residence. Some broken grassland adjoined her cottage, and next the dark fir woods which terminated the happy valley. Miss Batesby often wondered why the tin shanty was built so much higher on the hill. Quite a steep little winding path led up to it. There was a mere strip of garden ground in front with the ugly little iron room, but behind the cottage there was nothing but bracken and firs bushes, and then the dark terraces of firs climbing up the hill. It is the sort of view to drive anyone melancholy mad in winter, Miss Batesby would say, from the parlor windows there is not even a curl of smoke to be seen, nothing but black firs back and front and a few firs bushes. No wonder Mr. Roper lets it so cheaply. Miss Batesby spent the greater part of the next day roaming in the fir woods, but she could see little except the top of the van. Only once she saw a tall figure in a curious red headgear come out of the back door and stand with shaded eyes looking up the hill. But before Miss Batesby could properly focus her, she had gone indoors again. Miss Batesby would have gone home quite discouraged. Only, happily, she met Chatty going down to Crampton's for some butter and eggs, and being young and impressionable, she was like wax in Miss Batesby's hands. Was that tall lady Miss Ingram? Oh, laws, yes. She had heard her mother call her Miss Ingram half a dozen times. She was the tallest and the funniest lady she had ever seen, and she laughed. Oh, Chatty had never heard anyone laugh like that. It kind of made you laugh, too. Cross-examined by Miss Batesby. She knew nothing about Mr. Ingram. There was no gentleman there at all, and Miss Ingram was not going to sleep there. She heard her say that she was going back to London. No, she did not know when she was coming down again, but they were to light fires and get some victuals in by the evening. Miss Ingram wants me to live with them. She says I am quite old enough to go to service now. And Chatty looked at Miss Batesby with conscious pride. The next morning, while Mrs. Perks and Chatty were busily engaged emptying a crate of china in the tiny kitchen, Miss Batesby coolly proceeded to make a tour of inspection through the cottage. The furniture was of the simplest description, wickerwork chairs and couch in the sitting room, old-fashioned mahogany in the small dining room. Second hand, bought probably at some sale, thought Miss Batesby contemptuously, and then she glanced curiously at a violin and mandolin case that looked sufficiently solid and handsome. 
There was a big case of books, too, and several pictures with their face turned to the wall. Upstairs, the arrangements were even more simple. Small iron bedsteads and the other furniture of stained wood. In one room, there was an immense sponge bath and some dumbbells over which Miss Batesby stood and pondered. Then she went down and questioned Chatty, who is now blackletting the kitchen stove. Oh, laws, yes. The bath was for Mr. Ingram. Miss Ingram had said that her brother could not live without his tub. Tom Flynn had already been engaged at eighteen pence a week to bring up water from the pump down by the inn early every morning. Miss Batesby evidently thought this news worth retailing, for she actually went to Kingsdean a second time, and she was secretly gratified when Miss Compton put down her work as she listened. Dear me, they must be gentle people, she said half to herself and half to Penelope, for, being a woman of the world, she knew that cleanliness often came before godliness in aristocratic circles, and there was something in the big sponge bath that appealed forcibly to her imagination. But Pen, who was a little out of her bearings, looked rather perplexed at this. They must be tidy, respectable people, she said, in her gentle, serious way. But the tin shanty is a poor place. The ceilings are so low, and the windows only half open, and there is no garden to speak of. And then she corrected herself laboriously. I mean, there is no garden that can be called one, for Pen was trying to break herself of slipshod, ungrammatical English and in consequence she was a little pedantic at times. But Felix had not the heart to tell her so. Her old-fashioned ways, her unconscious pedantry, were all very sweet to him. Mrs. Compton began to feel curious about the newcomers, but, at the same time, she wanted Jack to give them a clear berth until she had found out more about them. Jack was so impulsive and incautious, he was ready to be hail-fellow well-met with anyone, before many days were over, he might have plunged into intimacy with the newcomers. Oh, Jack, dear, do be careful, she said more than once. It is so much safer to look before you leap. How do we know the Ingrams are people we should care to visit? True, Mr. Wentworth said just now that it was a good name, but many good old families have unworthy members belonging to them, stray black sheep, and then only extreme poverty could induce them to put up with the tin shanty. Oh, I don't know, Mater, returned Jack, with a slight shrug. The tin shanty is not so bad. It always reminds me of our diggings in Colorado, when Miles and I chummed for a month. I could understand any fellow taking a fancy to it. It is so quiet. None of the valley houses overlook it. Perhaps Ingram is a photographer or an artist. Oh, it is all right. You may depend on it. And Jack marched off, whistling with scamp at his heels. At this time... The young squire of Sandylands was a little restless and unhappy. In spite of his sweet, peace-loving nature, his mother's despotic yoke pressed heavily on him. His eighteen months of freedom, of buoyant movement and activity, made the old thraldom still more irksome. Why had his mother not learnt wisdom by this time? Why was a clever woman, for she was a clever woman, so dense as to believe she could fit a round thing comfortably into a square hole? Why did she not give up all her useless efforts and put up with him as he was? Jack, who was by no means perfect, grew a little sulky at last under his mother's endless strictures. Once or twice he had answered her so curtly that Madame had looked at him in grieved displeasure. You need not be so short with me, Jack, she had said. I am only speaking for your good. And when Jack saw the tears in her eyes, 
he told himself angrily that he was a brute. If only Mrs. Compton had guessed how her smooth, sarcastic speeches galled Jack's sensibilities. But with all her cleverness, she was a little dense, and dearly as she loved Jack, she still persisted in rubbing him up the wrong way. If I could only do one thing to please her, Jack would say to himself as he walked down to the farm, and in spite of his want of imagination, he would picture to himself some stirring deed that should make his mother's eyes beam softly with admiration. But, alas, Sandylands offered no scope for heroism. There were no runaway horses to arrest, and no fair lady dragging with her foot in the stirrup. There was no possible encounter with a mad dog or an infuriated bull. Dogs never went mad in sandy lands, and bulls were in safe pasturage. No burglars or poachers ever showed their evil faces. In fact, life was quiet and uneventful in the Happy Valley. Jack, who was not without some sense of humor, wondered how it would be if, instead of some dowdy deed of valor, he were to be guilty of some heinous and irrevocable delinquency, some deviation from Compton rectitude, some lapse or indiscretion in which he would be taken red-handed, and for which there could be no redress. Already, Mrs. Compton had gently hinted at certain endowments that would render a daughter-in-law acceptable. Indeed, Jack recalled, with dreary amusement and a short lecture that she had once delivered as they walked to and fro on the terrace. Of course, you must marry, Jack, she had said in a softer tone than usual, and I mean to be very fond of your wife. There is no need for her to be an heiress, she continued. You have plenty of money, unless you think of going into Parliament. Here there was a brisk negative on Jack's part. Oh, I know, continued Mrs. Compton, dryly, that there is little hope of drawing you from your bucolic occupation. Prize oxen and fat sheep are more to your taste than the interests of your country. My dear mother, protested Jack, but Mrs. Compton only shrugged her shoulders impatiently. Oh, there is no need to discuss all that, she went on. I was only speaking of your future wife. Jack blushed a little in the darkness as his mother said this, my dear boy, I want you to be careful of one thing. Riches are not indispensable, but she must be a gentlewoman and belong to a good family. And, Jack, though beauty is deceitful and favor vain, I hope she will be handsome. And as Jack said amen to this with unusual fervency, Mrs. Compton for once felt they were of one mind. Jack listened dutifully when his mother begged him to give the tin shanty a wide berth, but he bound himself by no promise. It had grown to be a habit with him to listen in silence, and then perhaps go out and do the very thing that Mrs. Compton had begged him not to do. Madam called it obstinacy and self-will, but Jack merely regarded it as manly independence. He was excessively curious about the new owners of the tin shanty, and had already made up his mind to take his own observations. So one afternoon, about a week after Miss Batesby's second visit to Kingsdean, he purposely took the path through the fir woods that would bring him out at the back of the cottage. He had scarcely reached his vantage ground before the sound of a female voice made him lie low. In other words, he dropped behind a furze bush, and lying down full length on the bracken, propped himself on his elbows and reconnoitered the position. He was on the verge of the wood, and only firs and bracken clothed the remainder of the hill. 
a small space of level ground just above the tin shanty made an excellent drying ground here some lines had been fixed and a tall girl in a blue serge dress and a red tam-o'-shanter cap perched rather knowingly on her brown hair was busily pegging some flapping sheets on the lines while chatty watched her respectfully her back was towards jack nevertheless he regarded her with amazement she was the tallest girl he had ever seen in his life she must have been little short of six feet but her figure was so supple and beautiful and her movements were so full of life and unconscious grace that he watched her with a feeling of undefinable pleasure she was evidently new to the work and a little awkward at it and every now and then a peg slipped and then chatty groaned and her mistress laughed for the heavy sheet flapped earthward again oh chatty i do wish you were a little taller observed the owner of the tam-o'-shanter presently when she had become a little breathless with her labors pegging wet sheets is not quite in my line there it has flapped again the tiresome thing and here there was another silvery laugh but i won't be beaten no i won't go and fetch me a kitchen chair chatty but here jack could lie low no longer will you allow me to help you he said but as the young lady stared at the sound of a strange voice and turned round jack had a shock that almost took his breath away for in spite of her beautiful figure and brown hair and pleasant voice miss ingram was decidedly plain nay more she was positively ugly with that frank decided ugliness that at first sight offers no redeeming points jack could have overlooked the wide mouth and clumsy unfinished nose but the small greenish-blue eyes and the sandy ill-defined eyebrows were sore defects why had nature been so cruelly hard to any woman by giving her the figure of an angel if angels have figures and then blurring her handiwork in this fashion there was really something grotesque in miss ingram's ugliness and though when she laughed she showed a row of pearly white teeth that would have filled any dentist with admiration jack could only notice how her eyes crinkled up and almost disappeared yes he had had a shock but all the same he would give her the help she needed but miss ingram only laughed in an easy unembarrassed fashion as he took the peg from her hand and began fixing it in a thoroughly workmanlike manner you ought to do it so he said and so now let me put up that last sheet for you i did not know there were such kind neighbors in sandy lands observed miss ingram and then as jack drove in another peg he thought how delightful it would be to listen to miss ingram's voice if he could only shut his eyes thank you so much and then she hesitated and the reason of her unfinished sentence was so obvious that jack hastened to introduce himself my name is john compton and i live at kingsdean over there pointing to the grand-looking house with its many windows shining in the afternoon sun. "'Oh, you are the squire, are you?' and Miss Ingram looked at him a little curiously. "'I know. Mr. Wentworth was talking about you yesterday. You are an excellent farmer, but he never told us you were able to peg sheets.' "'No, it does not do to praise people too much,' returned Jack modestly. "'One must keep something in reserve.' I learnt this useful accomplishment when I was a youngster. I used to help old Mrs. Bennet at the grey cottage on washing days. It was one of my greatest treats, especially when we made toffee afterwards. Have you a weakness for toffee, Miss Ingram? Well, 
No, she returned frankly, but I shall shock you dreadfully if I own that, as a child, I loved those great brown sticky brandy balls. It was a vulgar, plebeian taste, but when I had one of them in my mouth, I felt life was just the essence of sweetness. And here she pushed her red tam o shanter a little to one side. I am not sure that I should not enjoy a brandy ball now. There are splendid ones at Crampton's, returned Jack eagerly, and he began to find Miss Ingram amusing. She was decidedly original and out of the common. Are there indeed? Well, as the clothes basket is empty, we may as well go round to the front of the house. Should you like me to introduce you to my brother, Mr. Compton? He is painting a little below the cottage. As she said this, Miss Ingram took up one end of the basket while Jack grasped the other, and then they gravely carried it in. If only Madame could have seen that sight. Is your brother an artist? asked Jack, when they had reached the little porch. Well, he thinks himself one, and I hope you will not undeceive him. To be frank with you, Mr. Compton, my brother is an idealist, and he idealizes even his own work. You have no idea how happy it makes him. I advise you to try his receipt if you ever feel low. Nothing is so cheerful as to carry your own halo about with you. And then they turned a corner, leading to a small open glade, and there Jack saw a young man in an old brown velveteen coat and a wide-brimmed felt hat, rather peaked in the middle, painting under the shade of an immense white umbrella. I have brought you a visitor, Moritz, observed his sister in her cheery voice. Mr. Compton, this is my brother. And then the two young men shook hands, the artist with effusion, and Jack cordially but tentatively. Moritz Ingram was almost as surprising as his sister. At first sight, no one would have guessed that they belonged to each other. He was a small, dark man, somewhat foreign in his appearance. His skin was swarthy, and he had a black mustache turned up and twisted in Louis-Napoleon fashion. And his hair would have done credit to Pentonville or Portland, but he had bright, clear eyes, and he spoke like a cultured man. Sandylands is a model village, he said, looking a little absently, but fondly at a small, smudgy sketch on his easel. We have only been a week here today. Is it a week? Is it not, Gwen? And actually, the vicar has called, and now the squire, two whole and distinguished visitors in one week. And Mr. Ingram sighed, as though the magnitude of his blessings oppressed him. Three visitors, Moritz. You must not forget Miss Batesby, our kind next-door neighbor. Jack looked up sharply. Was there a sarcastic accent in Miss Ingram's charming voice? Oh, to be sure. But then it is three or four days since that good lady honored us with a visit. By the by, Gwen, you must return that call. England and Sandylands expect everyone to do his duty. It is an odd thing, Mr. Compton, but every village has its Miss Batesby. It is a genus that flourishes everywhere. I have met a dozen Miss Batesby's already, though they call themselves by other names, but they are all industrious and painstaking like our neighbor on the green. Poor Miss Batesby, he teased her unmercifully. I told you, Mr. Compton, that my brother was an idealist. If visitors do not please him, he weaves a perfect web of invention to keep them off the premises. Poor little woman, I had to go to the rescue at last. She looked as bewildered as though she did not know whether she was standing on her head or her heels. Now, Gwen, no exaggeration. 
I cannot have Mr. Compton prejudiced against me, just as I hoped I was making a favorable impression on him. So much depends on first impressions. As I saw Miss Batesby was of an inquiring turn of mind, I only volunteered a little information. I begged her, for my sister's sake, not to ask why my hair resembled a scrubbing brush, and I gently intimated, very gently, that certain brain diseases required cooling and stringent applications. I could see she was impressed, painfully so. And here Mr. Ingram heaved a deep sigh and commenced daubing a fresh smudge of indigo blue across the canvas. Mr. Compton, don't listen to him, returned Miss Ingram. He behaved shamefully. He frightened the poor little woman nearly out of her senses. I really think that she went away with the belief that Moritz had just come out of Hanwell. If he had kept to brain diseases, it would not have mattered so much, but he got on the subject of criminal instincts, and actually asked her if she had ever felt suddenly as though a bodkin or a blunt pair of scissors were dangerous weapons. A blunt instrument in a desperate hand can do a lot of damage. Those were his very words, and I was not at all surprised when she said very hurriedly that she must go. Jack threw back his head with one of his boyish laughs, and Miss Ingram joined him, but the artist only regarded them mournfully and shook his head. Young, very young, he murmured. Gwendolen, my child, when you have finished your outburst of unseemly merriment, will you kindly instruct the infant to have tea in the front garden? And then, as his sister nodded and vanished, Mr. Ingram dropped his whimsical, melodramatic manner and began talking in a sensible way. Never had Jack spent a pleasanter afternoon. When Miss Ingram summoned them to tea, they found her presiding over a little Japanese tea table in the porch. Two wicker chairs, softly cushioned, were on the tiny level strip of green that comprised the front garden, and below them lay the valley, and opposite the fur-clad hill with white paths winding in all directions. For once, Jack felt perfectly in his element, and before he took his leave, he had made up his mind that the Ingrams were congenial spirits. They were evidently well-bred people. There was an unmistakable air of ease and cultivation about them, and though they did not indulge Jack with any autobiographical sketches, and never even hinted at their reason for settling down in Sandylands, he felt instinctively that they were to be trusted. The conversation turned chiefly on Japan. Jack learnt, to his surprise, that both the brother and sister had been there, and Mr. Ingram grew quite excited in his praise of a certain dark-eyed musumi at a tea house in Tokyo. She was in a dove-colored silk kimono and wore a pale pink obi. Do you remember, Gwen? And Mr. Ingram's eyes almost closed with rapture. She was a perfect darling. I lost my heart to her. Only Gwendolyn object to mixed marriages and a Japanese sister-in-law and hurried me away. And then we made straight tracks for England and hard work and retrenchment and the bitter bread and unalloyed water of indigence became the orders of the day. And here Mr. Ingram helped himself to another slice of brown bread covered thickly with clotted cream, a Somerset recipe for afternoon tea, as Gwendolyn informed their visitor. And then... When Jack modestly told them that he had just been round the world, they put him through his paces and absolutely refused to talk more of themselves. Jack had not half exhausted his Colorado experiences when he discovered how late it was and took his leave in a hurry. 
You must come again and finish your ranch stories, observed Mr. Ingram in friendly fashion, as they stood together on the brow of the hill. And Gwendolen must play her mandolin. We are rather musical people, Compton. The violin is my instrument. Tell it not in Gath. Breathe it not in Miss Batesby's ear. I have a Stradivarius dearer to me than wife or child, or even a Musumi in a pink obi. Moritz, Mr. Compton is really in a hurry. Thank you, Miss Ingram. You are very good to take my part. It is almost as kind to speed the parting guest as to welcome him. And then Jack colored and stammered a little. I have had an awfully jolly afternoon, and I will certainly come again and bring my mother. And then he set off at full speed for Kingsdean. End of section 15